Would you please pray with me? Oh God, you are the true God. You are the living God and the everlasting King. Your kingdom is an eternal kingdom. Your dominion endures from generation to generation. Scripture testifies that this is true. It also proclaims your steadfast love from cover to cover. Oh, Father, prepare our hearts to see and understand the depths of your love for us as we open the book of Malachi. I pray that you will give us ears to hear and eyes to see the compelling evidence of how you have loved us and how you continue to love us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would wash me clean and fill me with yourself. Speak your words to your people. This I ask in the holy and mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. How have you loved me, God? Have you ever asked God that? When life doesn't go as we planned, when the future seems hopeless, our circumstances hard, when we suffer loss, and when we see the world around us circling the drain, it is easy to question God's love, to wonder if he hears our prayers or sees our struggle. It is easy for our love for God to grow cold and distant. This is what happened to the Ephesian church. This year we're studying Paul's letter to the churches in Asia Minor, including the Ephesian church. They were standing firm in their faith, but they needed some encouragement. Years later, their struggle intensified. In the last book of the Bible, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, God addresses the Ephesian church saying, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. I know you cannot bear with those who are evil. I know you are bearing up under my name. And you have not grown weary. But, but, I have this against you. You have left. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. You have deserted me, your first love. The Ephesian church was a good church. It was a solid church. But God says something is missing. Were they just going through the motions? How passionate was their love for God? God's indictment against them was piercing. They had fallen out of love with him. Intense persecution, hardship, and personal struggle caused the Ephesians to abandon the love that they had for God when they first became believers and when they first planted the church at Ephesus. Had they begun to wonder if God still loved them? Were they like the people of Malachi's day, looking at their circumstances and asking him, how have you loved us? In answer to this question, God provides compelling evidence for how he has loved and will always love his covenant people. In fact, God provides overwhelming evidence of his great love for us. As we examine that evidence in Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, it is my hope 
And it is my prayer that our love for God will awaken and grow fiery hot, that a holy amazement will grip our souls as we ponder how deeply God loves us. We have two divisions focused on God's love, unearned love and unchanging love. Our first division is unearned love, Malachi 1, verses 1 through the first part of 3. So verse 1 says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. In the original Hebrew, this phrase is literally an oracle. The word of Yahweh to Israel by the hand of Malachi. Now, it's important to understand what the word oracle means here. In, in Hebrew, it is masa, and it is better translated to English as burden. Malachi's prophetic message is a burden to his soul and a burden to deliver because it is ominous. It is a judgment from God. Such prophecies were normally reserved for God's enemies. But here... Israel is being called on the carpet to hear a word from the Lord God Almighty. This word came by the hand of Malachi. Literally, the Lord gave it to Malachi and Malachi wrote it down. Now it comes to Israel from the hand of Malachi. Using the name Israel is the first evidence of God's great love for his covenant people. At the time Malachi lived, there was not much left of the nation of Israel. After the glorious reigns of kings David and Solomon, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel to the north and the kingdom of Judah to the south. About 300 years before Malachi's prophecy, God judged the ten unfaithful, rebellious tribes of the kingdom of Israel by allowing Assyria to conquer them. They were scattered and absorbed into the Assyrian culture, never to return to Jerusalem. In 586 BC, God used the Babylonian army to judge the tribes of the kingdom of Judah. They were conquered and carried off into exile in Babylon. Seventy years later, God proved that he still loved them by ending their exile through the decree of King Cyrus. Many returned to Jerusalem. Malachi lived among them, and these are the people God continues to call by their covenant name, Israel. They are his treasured possession, his holy nation. He still loved them and considered them the proper heirs to his covenant promises. This provided overwhelming evidence of his great love for them even as he sent Malachi to announce that he has a burden of a word of the Lord. The word burden would prepare these people to hear a word of judgment, a stern rebuke. This is certainly what they deserved. Instead, Malachi opens with a tender word of love from the heart of God. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
God is not declaring a worldly love or a human love. He is proclaiming a strong, durable, intimate covenant love, like the love of a husband and a wife bound together in the covenant of marriage. This is the steadfast love of God described by the Hebrew word hesed. This is the Bible's favorite word to describe this special attribute or character trait of God. Usually it translates into kindness or loving kindness in our Bibles. Hesed is one of the most treasured characteristics of God. It is a covenant word most preciously used in the context of God's covenant relationship with his people. Because God loves his people, he has bound himself by covenant to act faithfully for and toward them, even when they are unfaithful and his love is completely unearned. Through his prophet Malachi, God calls wayward covenant people back to himself, and his call is wrapped up in hesed steadfast love. The fact that God needed to remind his people of his love for them, it means that they had wandered far from him. They did not know him as intimately as they should have, as they should have known. They had replaced their love for him with unbelief, indifference, and even defiance. God continues speaking in verse 2. He says, I have loved you But you say, how have you loved us? Do you hear the audacity and the entitlement in this question? God is indicting a dissatisfied, disappointed people for doubting his love for them. When they had returned from exile in Babylon, God's people wanted, no, they expected a return to Israel's glory days under the rules of Kings David and Solomon. But their excitement quickly evaporated. Life back in Jerusalem was harsh. They were barely scratching out a living. Had they misheard God? Didn't he promise his covenant people a better life than this? You say you love us, but it sure doesn't look like it. Show us how you loved us. They want proof, evidence. In response, God reaches back into his history with Israel to provide proof. In verses 2 and 3, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now of all the Old Testament examples of God's love, I'm not sure that you and I would choose this one. As you studied this week, you discovered that neither Esau or Jacob deserved God's love. A.W. Pink says that there was no more reason in Jacob that he should be the object of divine love than there was in Esau. They both had the same parents and were born at the same time, being twins, yet God loved the one and hated the other. 
Why? Because it pleased him to do so. The sovereignty of God's love necessarily follows from the fact that it is uninfluenced by anything in the creature. In other words, God's love is unearned, given out of sheer grace. God chose to love Jacob and hate Esau. Now, this does not sound very fair to our modern ears. However, the words love and hate are covenant language reflecting God's sovereign choice. That God loved Jacob meant that he chose Jacob. That he hated Esau means that he did not choose Esau. Unearned love is the love that God bestows on his people by grace simply because it is his will to do so. This provides overwhelming evidence of God's great love for us. God chooses to love some unworthy sinners, not because of anything they have done or will do, but because it is his sovereign choice. This choice points us to the doctrine of election, a doctrine that often raises far more questions than it does answers. I highly recommend that you go to CEPC.org and listen to Richard Harris's sermon on Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. John Stott's comments on God's unearned love are also very clear. Listen very carefully to what he says. God chose us because he loves us, and he loves us because he loves us. He does not love us because we are lovable, but only because he is love. And with that mystery, we must be content. Malachi points to God's election of Jacob and the nation of Israel to comfort and reassure God's people. Having done nothing to earn or deserve God's electing love, they could do nothing to lose it. In fact, they had done everything to lose it. Still, his covenant love, his hesed, it remains secure. How had God loved them? With a steadfast, trustworthy, faithful, grace-permeated covenant love. He remained faithful to his covenant promises even when his people were faithless, rebellious, manipulative, and deceitful. No matter what we do, God remains the same. He is not just loving toward us. He is love. All that he does is saturated with his love. God provides overwhelming evidence of his great love for us. And the greatest evidence is the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross, the fulfillment of his covenant of redemption. God has proved his great love for us by redeeming us from sin and death. Therefore, we can trust him to fulfill every one of his covenant promises because he loves us. Our first truth is that God proves his love for us by remaining faithful to all his covenant promises. How have you replaced your love for God with unbelief, indifference, 
or defiance? Which covenant promises might you use as proof of God's steadfast love for you? To those who are in Christ, the saints, the believers, God promises his peace that is beyond understanding. He promises an abundant and eternal life. He promises to be with us always. He promises his all-sufficient grace in our weakness. He promises to strengthen us and sustain us in our weakness. And God promises to be enough, even when we do not feel we can take another step. He is able to meet us at the point of our greatest need and give us immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Do not let your circumstances make you lose your love for God. Look at your circumstances through the lens of God's love for you. Lose yourself in his great and gracious love. Because as John Owens writes, we are never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in holy amazement at his unspeakable love. God proves his love for us by remaining faithful to all his covenant promises. This also reveals his unchanging love. That's our second division, unchanging love. Malachi chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. During Israel's Babylonian exile, the Edomites still lived safe and secure in their mountain fortresses. Now, seeing Edom's security and prosperity compared with their own insecurity and poverty made Israel wonder if God truly loved them. Generations later, did his covenant love still hold true? But God provides overwhelming evidence of his great love for his people with the promise to avenge an old enemy. Look at verses 3 through 4. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Having declared his covenant love for his people. God condemns her enemy, Edom. The people of the nation of Edom were descendants of Esau. Scripture testifies that Esau was a godless, immoral man. Generational sin left its mark on the Edomites. As a people, they exhibited pride, arrogance, and violence against Israel. Their wickedness against God's people is demonstrated in one particular incident. After God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt, he led them through the desert toward Canaan, the land that he promised to give them. Numbers chapter 20 recounts how when the Israelites arrived at the border of Edom to pass through, twice the Edomite king refused to allow them to do so. The second time they came out with a large army and a strong force against Israel. 
I'm always blown away by that thought because I'm thinking, you know, that big old cloud that, that, that led the Israelites through the desert? Didn't they see that? But no, they didn't let them through. God's people had to turn around and find a different route. From Esau's hatred of Jacob, enmity between the two nations continued unabated. The Edomites never stopped trying to win back the blessing that Esau lost to Jacob. In response to Edom's repeated attacks against Israel, God's prophet Ezekiel spoke forth this curse. Thus says the Lord God, because Edom acted revengefully against the house of Judah and, and has grievously offended in taking vengeance on them, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against Edom and cut it off from uh, man and beast, and I will make it desolate. They shall fall by the sword, and I will lay my vengeance upon Edom by the hand of my people Israel, and they shall do in Edom according to my anger and according to my wrath, and they shall know my vengeance, declares the Lord God. Now, you and I read passages like that in the Old Testament, and we wonder, how has God loved them? Passages about God's wrath and his vengeance can shake our confidence in the unchanging love of God. We wonder, well, what if I commit a really big and a really bad sin? Will God's love for me change to hate or vengeance? Our tendency is to see and understand God's love in the same way that we love or the world loves. Our love is fickle, subject to change on a whim. Our love is feelings-based. We love one moment and we hate the next. This is not true of God. God's love never changes because God never changes. All of his attributes are true of him 100% of the time. While he is 100% gracious, he is 100% just. While he is 100% wrathful against sin and evil, he is 100% loving toward all he has made. In fact, understanding God's wrath in the context of his unchanging love keeps us from the deadly error of thinking that God's love will allow everyone to be saved. That, my friends, is false teaching. God cannot and he will not allow sin to go unpunished. For him, that is not unloving. Those who think so do not understand the doctrine of the love of God. God is not just loving. He is love. He embodies it, authors it, and gifts it to us. His love is extravagant, extraordinary, and eternal. It is sacrificially gracious and merciful. In love, he laid down his life to save us from sin and death. Our love is self-centered and self-serving. It pales in comparison. God's love for his covenant people is a great and steadfast love. 
The Bible is simple in its expression or definition of God's love. It says it is great. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. John three sixteen uses one little word, so. God so loved the world. But when God uses the word great regarding his love, it describes a love that is so stupendous that it goes beyond our limited ideas of greatness. God's love is so great that we cannot really understand it or appreciate it in our fallen state. However, when you and I see ourselves as sinners standing under the wrath of God, then to know that God loves us anyway is remarkable, stunning. The love of God is only seen in its fullness at the cross of Jesus Christ. That is why it is so difficult to find a verse in the New Testament that speaks of God's love without also speaking in the same verse or in the immediate context about God's gift of his son on Calvary. Look it up. See if you can find it. Look at verses like John 3.16, Galatians 2.20, 1 John 4.10, Revelation 1.5. They all hold the love of God and the cross of Christ together. Only after we come to appreciate the meaning of the cross can we appreciate the love behind it. Seeing this, Augustine once called the cross a pulpit from which Christ preached God's love to the world. God's judgment of Edom also preached his unchanging love for his holy nation, Israel, from generation to generation, he remained faithful because he loved Israel, even when they engaged in practices just as wicked as Edom. They had lost their first love. Yet God says in verse 5, Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. While God's people struggle to grasp how God loved them, God assures them that his love has not changed. And in time, they would see and acknowledge his unmerited favor. With their own eyes, they would see Edom destroyed and then say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Old Testament expert Walter Kaiser writes that God's love in its graciousness and in its judgments would go beyond them, even as God promised Abraham when he first called him and set his love on him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Have you ever heard that? We're blessed to be a blessing. That's where it comes from. This blessing, Paul easily labeled as the good news or the gospel in Galatians 3.8. You see, God's love is a gospel love, and it goes out to everyone. It is a great love because he is a great God. 
He promised to reveal to Israel how his greatness encompasses his absolute authority, his omnipotence, and his sovereignty. God is great because he embodies these and all of his attributes perfectly. The reason his people could not see his love or his greatness or any of his attributes is because they had neglected to cultivate their love for him by meditating on his love for them. Alistair Begg says that the greatness of God is not revealed in his isolation from us, but is revealed in his intimacy with us. While God declared his unchanging love for Israel by faithfully keeping covenant with them, it was up to each individual to nurture his or her love for God. A.W. Pink says there is little real love for God. One chief reason for this is because our hearts are so little occupied with his wondrous love for his people. The better we are acquainted with his love, its character, fullness, blessedness, the more will our hearts be drawn out in love to him. What occupies your heart? Is it God? A little bit of God? Or a lot of God? It is a comfort to know that our love for him wholly depends on his love for us. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. And God provides overwhelming evidence of his great love for us. God set his love on Jacob, but Esau he hated. In the same way believers are chosen by God, he has set his love on us. And we are caught up in a divine circle of his great love. God proves this love for us by his unchanging commitment to love us. Our second truth is that God proves his love for us by his unchanging commitment to love us. In what specific ways have you seen God's unchanging commitment to love you? Have you experienced God's sustaining power or strength in your weakness? Have you experienced his presence in your sorrow or his light in your darkness? Or has your love for him grown so cold and so distant that you no longer know him or your need for him? How can you fuel your fire of love for him? Sinclair Ferguson says that if we have deep-seated fears that God does not really love us, we can only go so far in growing nearer to God. When we look at ourselves or our own faith or our circumstances, we will never be free from those lurking fears. Satan will see to that. But when we lift up our eyes and look on the cross, we will find the final persuasion that God is gracious toward us. How can he be against us when all his wrath against us fell upon Christ? How can he fail to care for us when he gave the only son he had for our sake? 
How can we doubt him when he has given us evidence of his love sufficient to banish all doubts? God's love is the most awesome thing about him. It is not his justice, nor his majesty, nor even his blazing holiness, but the fact that he has made and keeps covenant of personal commitment and love to his people. Truly, God proves his love for us by his unchanging commitment to love us. How has God loved us? The evidence is clear. It is compelling. His love is unearned because he is gracious. His love is unchanging because he is unchanging. His love is great because he is great. His love is eternal because he is eternal. Oswald Chambers writes, Look back over your own history as revealed to you by grace. And you will see one central fact growing large. God is love. No matter how often your faith in such an announcement was clouded, no matter how often the pain and suffering of the moment made you speak carelessly, this statement has carried its own evidence most persistently. God is love. In the future, When trials and difficulties await you, do not be fearful. Whatever and whoever you may lose faith in, do not let this faith slip from you. God is love. Whisper it, not only to your heart in the hour of darkness, but here in your corner of God's earth and man's great city. Live in the belief of it. Preach it by your sweet and disciplined happy life. Sing it in the consecrated moments of peaceful joy. The world does not encourage you to sing, but God does. Song is a sign of an unburdened heart. So sing your songs of love freely, rising ever higher and higher into fuller understanding of the greatest, grandest fact on the stage of time. God is love. When the duller moments come, and the mind requires something more certain than the memory of mere emotions and stirring sentiments, consider this revelation, the eternal fact that God is love. God and love are synonymous. Love is not an attribute of God. It is God. Whatever God is, love is. Has the lover of your soul given you enough evidence to rediscover him as your first love? How will you respond afresh to the God who whispers to your heart, I have loved you? Would you please pray with me? Oh, your love, oh God, it reaches to the heavens. Your faithfulness stretches to the skies. How great is your love for us. A love expressed when you sent your son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Such love, God, humbles us to the core and puts us flat on our faces before you in worship. Oh God, we praise you. 
Your steadfast love, it never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Our hearts explode with wonder. Great is your love, O Lord, and great is your faithfulness. You alone are worthy of all our praise. Father, hear our prayers and hear our praise. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.